book, go to the library and, and, and study and figure out how to get that done. I've done that recently here, just projects around the house, not knowing how to do stuff and working on a truck or anything like that. The first thing I do is I go to the internet and I look up and see how to do it. Well, that's fine and all, but this morning I want to kind of show you some examples of how that can lead you astray too, if you're doing it in a scriptural sense. Because it's, it's a good resource to look up, but whenever you get to stuff about religious items, whenever you start doing Google searches, it can lead you astray. So this morning we're going to look at four different questions that somebody that may be exploring the option of becoming religious or becoming a Christian, or if you're a new Christian and you're just asking simple questions that we probably take for granted that we know the answer to, being in the church that we are in and being in the one church. But the key thing that we always need to do, no matter what you do, and I used, I have to say, I used Google and stuff to prepare this lesson, to look for items and look for certain scriptures or certain thoughts that other people had. One way that I always usually try to narrow it down, though, is anything I'm looking at, I put Church of Christ behind of it. At least that helps getting you to narrow it down a little bit. But we all know that the one way we need to check everything, and that's the Bible. No matter what man says, we always need to go back to it and find out what he is. Because bear with me. It's the first time I've used PowerPoint preaching, so bear with me on this. So, again, like I mentioned, what's one site that we probably use weekly or daily? I know I use this all the time at work, trying to research something, trying to find something. So that's Google. Again, you have something on your phone, you have Siri, or you have Google on your phone. But what is, uh, as a scripture reading we were told this morning, what are we told to do? We're told to wash out for false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. We'll read that again here in just a second. Is a false teacher always somebody that's standing right in front of your face? No. False teacher could be something technology-wise. It could be a false advertisement or something. It could be uh, a pamphlet that you see laying around that's false teaching. It doesn't have to be somebody right in front of you. And most of the time, if I had to guess, they're never going to tell you, hey, get ready, I'm about to tell you something that's not in the Bible. But here you go. It's us, it's our responsibility to go back and study that. But Peter warns us about false teachers, teachers in uh, P- P- Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 that we read this morning. Let's read that again real quick. But there were also false prophets among the people, even if there was false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of the truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction not, does not slumber. Again, we know that false teachers are nothing new. False teachers started all the way back in the beginning of the Bible one of the first false teachers that we can think of is the devil with Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden, telling her that you can partake of that fruit. There's nothing wrong with it. God doesn't know what he's talking about. He just don't want you as smart as he is. So that's nothing new. But again, like I mentioned, false teachings can come in different 
um, different ways this, this modern day. But what's the best way for us to combat and understand when we see a false teacher? Again, like I mentioned, they're most of the time not going to tell you face to face that I'm about to teach you something wrong. But how do we know someone is a false teacher? We need to study and grow as we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him the glory both now and forever. We're supposed to, as Christians especially, we're supposed to study and grow to where we have those answers and can combat that whenever they come, come across and we can double check it. Just because of somebody standing up here in a pulpit don't mean you shouldn't be opening your Bible and following along and double checking everything that they say. Because they could accidentally say something. There's many times in the Bible that we could just change one word and it change a whole meaning of something. So this morning what I want to present is four questions that I literally typed into a Google search. And I want to show you the first thing that pops up on Google whenever you type that in. And then we're going to look at how, what the Bible actually says about it. And what we need to be doing and what we need to be studying and how we need to be presenting it to people. So the title this morning, what we're going to talk about is Let Me Google That. That's the title of my, how many times have I said that? Probably a lot. Let me figure that out. Let me Google it. So the first question we're going to ask is, can I use musical instruments in worship? It's a question that we are, are, are asked quite a bit probably in the, the Church of Christ. But this may be somebody asking and questioning it themselves. So the first thing you're going to see whenever you pop up on Google it's going to say this. It says, indeed, God commands the use of musical instruments in worship over and over again. It even goes into giving you Psalms chapter 98, verses 5 through 6, and it says, uh, Sing to the Lord with harp, with a harp, and the sound of psalms, with trumpets, and the sound of horn. So that's the first thing that pops up whenever you type in that search. So if you're not a Christian or you're not into the church, that's what your answer is going to be, and that's what you're going to just, you're going to end it there, right? You're not going to go anything else. The Old Testament has verses like this a lot of times that uses examples and it talks about musical instruments. But what we got to understand is that the Old Testament was the Jewish worship practices. And there's nothing to do with us today as being Christians. And we're under a different law. There are several examples of this and there are several examples in the Old Testament of items that we're not under today. Circumcision, I mean, we're under, if, there, if we were under all the laws of the Old Testament today, it would be, a lot, it'd be interesting. There'd be a lot of judgment passed that we, that we get to see today. But what does the Bible say about this? Let's talk about this. So the first thing is that passages that deal with music and worship, they use the words like singing, sing, or fruit of the lips, except for Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Here it says that speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in, the, in your heart to the Lord. The key word there is making melody in your heart. Making melody is a tran translation of the Greek word solo, it was a sen it, which essentially means sing. And, um, it's, and it's translated as sing in other passages where it's used. If there's an argument about this, Paul uh, would tells us that the instrument to solo with is the heart. So he already tells us here that singing and make melody in your heart. The heart should be the instrument we're using. Since Paul's given the command, he had reference and plan 
if he, in this command, had given reference to playing a musical instrument, then it would have been a command and we would have obliged, we would have had to obey that and we would have had it done it so. It wouldn't have been an option, but it had been mandatory for every Christian. The early church never worshipped God with mechanical instruments. We never see that in the New Testament. An instrument music is in worship is what we is an addition to the Word of God. Instrument music in the worship was is shouldn't be in there because it was not taught by Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20 tells us, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the day. Also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We're telling here that what we should do is we should not add to the Word unless it's commanded. It's an addition to the Word of God. Revelations chapter 22, verses 18 through 19 states, For I testify to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things... God will add to them the plagues that were written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. By adding musical instruments to the service, it causes us to lose the the sense of the worship. It causes us to be puffed up. We're putting more emphasis on the guitar player up front and all the events that's going around us and it's causing us to get puffed up and we're warned against that as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 <coughs> now these things brethren I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other <coughs> it's clear that there's no authority from God for the church to worship with mechanical instruments Such worship would be based on teaching of men and not teachings of God. And Jesus directly warns us about this in Matthew chapter 15 verse 9 where he says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God, so let's look at at the consequences of if we don't follow or we add to a word. So we're going to look at the Old Testament, a little bit of an Old Testament um, item here. God made it abruptly clear to Israel just how he felt about such. And one example that we can think of is the sin of Nahab and Abihu. That comes from Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his census and put fire in it, but incense on it, and offered profane fire against the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his place. Here Nahum and Abihu just burned the wrong incense. They used a profane fire, as it says. But why was it it profane? Because God didn't command it. God had, and they had no authority to do what they were doing. There are some today who offer profane music to the Lord. What is profane about it? 
Well, it's because God didn't command it. That's how we can tell you that. God's command is to sing. We have no authority to worship God with any other kind of music. So if God killed Nahab and Abihu for offering profane fire in the tabernacle of old, what would he do to those who offer profane music in his church today? The next question we want to ask is, does it matter what church you go to? So this is a, another one. So this one, I did the Google search, and it popped up a link, and the first link it popped up was this right here. So I went and clicked on this link. It says, if you believe the God that is inside you, which church do you belong to? It says, it even, again, most of these present a scripture to try to go through it and justify it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Paulus, are you not like the worldly? This person then goes on and says, Any church that preaches Christ, either Catholic, Baptist, Providence, Seventh-day Evangelist, even if I'm near a mosque, I'll still give to them. I'll still worship. Because I support God, not religions. No sector controls me because Christ belonged to none. And then it gives 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, God is not an author of confusion. I totally agree with that scripture. He's not an author of confusion. Men is. And men's the ones that's called, men have been the one that's caused us to be confused on what church and what, which one is the true church that we know of and what is in the Bible. So let's go and see what the Bible says here about this. First off, Christ promised he would build the church. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We know that Jesus did so by purchasing, with it, his, purchasing it with his blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We know that there's only one church. God proposed that. Jesus built only one church, and there's only one church that belongs to Christ and God. It tells us that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. There's one body of divine origin, and it's rightfully called the Church of Christ, since it belongs to Christ, and He purchased it. You're added to the church once saved. Jesus built the church when He shed His blood on the cross, and sinners obeyed the gospel at Pentecost on re after His resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we know about this, and the Lord adds those who saved to the church. The church does not save us. The church is the saved. We read in chapter 2, verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were saved. The church that you read in the New Testament is saved is not made up of denominations. It's not a church of churches. People are not saved by joining denominations, neither are the saved added to denominations. Denominations were started by men, not Christ, and they exist because they may have went to one and it didn't, they didn't agree fully with what they were saying and they wanted to change something or they preferred something different, so they just started another one. And they distinguished it by that, by adding another name on the outside of the building. Members of the church, the true church of Christ, have obeyed the same gospel. And all of us have heard, believed, repented, confessed, and baptized. 
That way we're all called Christians as we were first called in Acts chapter 11 verse 26. And all were contained of one faith. Denominations are not the church of Christ or church of God that you read about in the New Testament. One cannot join the church of his choice as that uh, Google search said and be saved. One must obey God, Christ's gospel to be saved and be part of Christ's church. One church is not as good as the other. The Lord's church is the right church. If Christ built and purchased His church and everyone who is saved is added to that church by the Lord, then only members of that church or the church of Christ are saved. Membership in the church is not the means of salvation. It is a result of being saved. People worshiping in a building with the words Church of Christ on it or on the front of it or on a sign out front may not be the church that belongs to Jesus. You still got to study and you got to show and you got to look at that. The sign has, name, has, has a name that honors and glorifies God, but have the people been saved the way the Lord directs them and are they searched to practice the gospel? Just because the name outside on the building says Church of Christ depends on how they're worshiping inside and how the, the actual church inside that building is, is worshiping. One should not be offended by the phrase Church of Christ when it's used scripturally. Our third question this morning is, do I need to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? So this is something else that comes up in uh, the world and different practices of this. So the first thing that comes up when you type in, do I need to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, is as many evangelical churches celebrate communion periodically, monthly, or quarterly. This is what, what's crazy with me. There's no clear command in Scripture as how often were to receive the Lord's Supper. And for this reason, many churches have decided not to offer it weekly because they don't want to, it to become routine or lose its special status. Well, that's not true, is it? I mean, we can read that straight out of the Scripture of what day and when we're supposed to take it and how often we're supposed to take it. But first, what does the Bible say about and what is the Lord's Supper? So we know that Jesus instituted that right before his arrest at his last Passover meal with the apostles. And during this meal is when he introduced what we know today as the Lord's Supper. We read this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. <coughs> when he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say, excuse me, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One thing that's mentioned here is unleavened bread. And we know that the unleavened bread stands for Christ's body. But why, if you've ever wondered, unleavened bread? Well, it's because in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, we're reading this, commanded to use unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread for the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. So unleavened bread was present during the Passover meal. That was the type of bread that they would have on the Passover meal. <clears throat> so, And we, of course, we know that that bread represents Christ's body. Jesus instructed the disciples that the bread is his body. We read in verse 19 there. 
And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do in remembrance of me. We know that the fruit of the vine represents Christ's blood, as he said in verse 29 that we just read. He told them that to not drink of this fruit of the vine is now, is now until that day will I drink new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's the expectations associated with it? First, first scripture um, indicates that the observance of the Lord's Supper is mandatory because Christ Jesus instituted it as a command, not a suggestion. Notice the different statements that um, is used by Jesus in his instructions in that. He says to his disciples, he says, take, eat. This is my body and drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Elsewhere, he instructed the disciples to do this in remembrance of me in Luke 22, verse 19 that we just read. As Jesus instructed this memorial, he did so with a command and therefore established that his followers would obey it and observe it. Second, something we should be devoted to. It's something that we should be devoted. And Luke describes an early church being devoted with the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In other words, they viewed the Lord's Supper as a primary importance. To them, the Lord's Supper mattered. It wasn't something they did by happenstance or that they observed spontaneously. It had a purpose. It was meaningful. It was prioritized. If we're going to emulate the first century church, then we must devote ourselves to observance of the Lord's Supper. Third, it mandates a self-examination prior to partaking of it. Why do you think most of the time whoever's leading or heading up the Lord's Supper, the first thing that they say usually is let our minds go back to that day on the cross. That's to put your mind in the right spot before you're taking of this Lord's Supper. It should be the only thing that should be take priority over everything else that you're looking at and you're reading. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord is in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. No other activity in worship assembly receives such a warning. Thus, Paul's words indicate the importance of this memorial as an essential part of the worship assembly. So when did the first century church observe it? Well, Scripture presents a pattern of observing the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. As Paul told the church in Taurus in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Paul supports Luke's association of the Lord's Supper with the assembly of the church on the first day of the week, as they're commanded. Five times in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, 18, 20, 33, and 34, it mentions when you come together as he criticized their important observation of the mindset toward the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Paul's use of this phrase indicates that the assembling of this congregation and the observance of the Lord's Supper coincide here. 
When did the Corinthian congregation assemble, though, that he's talking to here? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it tells us on the first day of the week, let each of you lay a, something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. The reason Paul associated these instructions with the first day of the week is because he knew they assembled as a congregation at this time. Therefore, when Paul answered the addressed the Lord's Supper in the first Corinthians chapter eleven that we read earlier, and said, When you come together, we can conclude that he was referring to their Sunday assembly because he specified their assembling on the first day of the week in first Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse two there. So it's evident that the New Testament that Jesus expected this memorial to be frequently observed. And the practice of the first century church was to observe this memorial when they assembled on the first day of the week. So in the New Testament references to the Lord's Supper and the practice of the early church indicate that the Lord's Supper was a central act of weekly assemblies of the early church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 tells us, what Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. So in other words, Paul reminds us that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's sacrifice, which saves us. Why wouldn't you remember Christ's sacrifice every time you assemble for the Lord's day? <coughs> the last question we're going to ask this morning, and it's most, one of the most important ones you'll ever ask yourself in your life, is do I need to be baptized to go to heaven? So, the first thing that pops up on your Google search when you see that, it says, according to the Bible, being baptized isn't necessary to go to heaven. Though some Christian traditions like Roman Catholicism and Eastern mythology teach it. Okay. According to the Bible, being baptized isn't necessary. I don't know where that's at. So, it's directly opposite of what that is. So, so nearly every religious body associated with Christianity and mentors baptism it's just however they believe it and what it does to them some it's an act of obedience that symbolizes a believer's faith in Christ and death to sin so it could be a week or two weeks later or when they have a large enough group together to do it others believe that baptism is simply how a believer becomes a member of the church body so Congregations associated with the Church of Christ, though we know that baptism is an essential part of the salvation. And that's what is belief-based because we know it's a direct link between baptism and salvation. But what does the Bible say? Well, Peter com compared it to the water that saved Noah in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20-21. through 21. It says, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah? While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an amphitheite which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul compared baptism to circumcision under the Mosaical law. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, says in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of your trespasses. So no, no matter, no one made the relationship between baptism and salvation clearer than our Lord Jesus did in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not will be condemned. Ever since Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, it's associated with every conversion mentioned in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 38, we know, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is prominently mentioned and associated with, with salvation throughout the New Testament. Baptism is essential to salvation because it's, one, it's, it's when one's sins are forgiven. When one receives the Holy Spirit, when one dies to sin, when one starts a new life, and when one becomes a child of God in Christ. So this morning I ask you, what do you need to do? You need to study the Bible so you can be of guard against these false teachers that you could see in the world today. These are just a few. I had probably 10, 15 different questions I went through of just simple stuff that you would take for granted, and it was just amazing, so I had to narrow it down of picking four. But what do you need to do this morning if you're not a Christian? You need to hear, as Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so then faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need to believe, as John chapter 8, verse 24 says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You must repent, as Acts chapter 17, verse, Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men elsewhere, everywhere to repent must confess, as Romans chapter, eight, chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confesses is made into salvation. And we must also be baptized. Mark chapter 16, verse 16, like Jesus said, he who believes and baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. So I ask, this, ask you this morning, if you were baptized, were you baptized in the way that in, into the true church? Were you baptized the way that the Bible tells us to? Or if you've been baptized and you've fallen away from the church and you've fallen away and you fell into sin, fallen into the world, do you need to come forward this morning and get repent, repent of those sins? So I ask if you need to come forward for any reason, do so as we together we stand and as we sing.